and welcome to another episode of Family Law and Lattes. I'm Melanie Batia-Samuel, a family law solicitor at MBS Family Law, and today I'm joined by Matthew Richardson of Quorum Chambers. Matt is a barrister and a mediator. As a barrister, he specializes in financial remedy and family property cases, including divorce, the separation of unmarried people, the entrance of wider family members, such as Talata claims, and financial support for children, Schedule 1 claims. As a mediator, he specializes in family disputes across all areas of family law, including but not limited to family finances, the arrangements for co-parenting children, and the involvement of wider family members relating to both finances and children. In this episode, Matt will be providing us with a reminder of the things we should be considering when dealing with pensions in a financial remedy context. Hello, Matt. Hi. Hey, welcome to Family Law and Lattes. Thank you for having uh, me. Thank you for coming on to this podcast and thank you for um, coming to talk about a topic that I absolutely hate because I'm irrationally scared of this one. Pensions and financial remedies and trust are the two things that always put me in a cold sweat because they're so important and I just, I'm always terrified. So thank you for coming to um, review this with me and to kind of remind me of what it is, how to deal with them and pensions and financial remedies generally. So thank you for that. Um, I'm going to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and to give us a little bit of background of what you do and who you are. So go ahead. The floor is yours. Uh, I'm Matthew Richardson. I'm a barrister and a mediator from Quorum Chambers. Um, I have, yeah, an emerging specialism in pensions uh, because for some reason I don't find them terrifying. Um, (laughs) And but I'm also interested in sort of all things to do with the future of how we do family law, mm. making it better for everyone, less stressful, more productive, um, you know, sort of all things well-being, I suppose, um, because actually well-being connects into productivity and, you know, positive outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yeah. actually pensions sort of fits into that in a weird way because people tend to be a little bit surprised that I think pensions are really interesting, uh, which is fair enough. Um, but actually, I think they're one of the great sources of an unfairness uh, in financial remedies work that's sort of under-considered. And yeah. that's why I'm quite keen to sort of, you know, train and educate and spread the message about how important they are and how they're actually not that scary. I, I do realise there's a weird sort of irony in um sort of explaining to people that they don't need to be that worried about it and it's not that difficult because I sort of do myself out of a job uh, in one way. <laughs> yeah, be reassured that even if you do say that, although it will make it clearer for us and the conversation we've had, you have made things clearer for me, uh, but we're still going to have to rely on other people to, to help us out here. So don't worry, true. your job is safe. Um, um, yes, well-being is something that you and I are both involved in. You've spearheaded several campaigns, uh, particularly through resolution on that. Um, and maybe you will come back on and talk to me about this later on, um, be because I think it's something that we're both um, really interested in and feel it's really important for the profession generally. Um, but focusing on pensions, um, I first asked you to, to talk about this because you and I were having a random conversation in one of our, I think it was one of our pod meetings or something. We were talking about uh, doing an episode together and I was like, I don't get these um, Galbraith tables that have popped up. And I'm, I'm, You can't see me, obviously, air quotes, <laughs> Galbraith tables, um, which I don't understand, but which you were like, yeah, I can talk you through those. And oh, we yeah. I find them, them unreasonably exciting. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> we'll talk about it at the end of the episode. But um, can we start off by you uh, explaining to me, um, going back to basics, basically. So financial remedies, pensions, um, going back to basics, what exactly is a pension? Um, and what is important to know about, um, why is it important to know about what pensions are, particularly in financial remedy proceedings? So when we're looking at divorcing couples, separating their assets, and we've got a pension pot, you know, what is a pension and why is it important to know about it? Let's go really back to basics. Well, put, put it very simply, putting it very simply, a pension is like a long-term savings account. It helps you save money now for when you're older. Um, and then obviously when you retire, you've then got the money to live from. So in financial remedies terms, it really what you're looking at is treating it as a source of income on retirement. And that's where there's a degree of nuance to it because it's not just a bank account. Mm. Uh, obviously, there are restrictions on how you can access it. Um, and then once you retire, what you then do with it or how it generates income for you is an important thing to understand because um, there are ways in which you can sort of simplify the concept of a pension and compare it to something else. So you kind of can compare it to, for example, having a rental property, which has a capital value of its own and then generates an income. But those sorts of comparisons are quite oversimplistic and can be a little bit dangerous. Yeah. Um, and that's why the advice really is treat pensions as their own separate thing. Uh, and try not to mix them into all the rest of the assets without doing it carefully if you need to do it at all. But yeah, the, the basics of what a pension is, is it's a, a financial asset whose principal purpose is to generate income when you retire. And um, I'm always, um, when, I'm, when I'm trying to talk to particularly my, my foreign clients, so my, my French clients or my Swiss clients, or it, the idea of what a pension is in the, in the UK um, and how how it is and how it's how it's kept and how it works. There are so many different types. Um, there's the state pension, which is one thing, and then there are private pensions, which is what most people, when they talk about pensions and financial remedies, are talking about. And then there are different types of private pensions. Uh, what exactly? Ignoring state pensions because that's a very separate thing, and I, we're not touching on those um, because we can't do much with them anyway. But we can't do anything with them. But what is what it, what are the the main types of private pensions, uh, what do they mean? How are they set out? What are they? Well, I think it's it's easy to get a little bit bogged down in uh, things like, oh, you know, I've got a SSAS, self, small self-administered scheme. I've got a, you know, what, and all the labels. Uh, there are lots of labels yeah. for pensions. And actually... Broadly speaking, they divide into two different types. The de defined contribution uh, pension scheme or a defined benefit pension scheme. Um, and what that means is you're sort of looking at how you value something. So a defined contribution scheme, or frequently they're called um, occupational schemes mm. um, is one where the value of it is defined with reference to what you've contributed to it. 
So, for example, you've got, you know, an Aviva pension that you've been paying into for however long over the course of your career. You can log on to their website and it says, here's your fund value because you've been paying in how much it's been going and being invested by the pension scheme. And it's it's, you know, it's defined. Its value is defined by how much you've contributed to it and then what that fund has done in terms of return. And then the other type of pension scheme, defined benefit, is typically your public sector scheme. So, you know, firefighters pension, NHS pension, often called final salary, Mm, Okay. whose value is principally with reference to the benefits you get from it. So its it's value is defined by the benefits it produces, defined benefit. So, for example, you know, you've got someone who's been working in the NHS for however long, and then their pension references their salary in whatever way the NHS have decided to do that, you know, with reference to years of service, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the, the way in which you, you understand its value is by looking at how much it pays you on an annual basis going forward. Sure. So they're the sort of two big sort of differences or two big types of pension. And sort of ne'er the twain shall meet uh, is kind of the message um, from a lot of pensions experts and, you know, from the pension advisory group, et cetera, is that when you get the figures from these pension schemes, you know, you write off to Aviva and they send you your statement, you write off to the NHS pension scheme and they send you your statement and they've got the value figure for the pension. Those two things, they mean very different things. So yeah, so that's number, why it's important to know that yeah. what, what exactly what kind of pension you're dealing with, because you can't just say, well, oh, I've got hundred thousand. No, no in a, like two hundred thousand in a in a DC defined contribution fund and two hundred thousand in a DB defined benefit fund. It doesn't it doesn't mean they're worth the same amount of money. Okay. So it's important to have. First of all, it's a really important difference to have and to figure out, and then all the subsequent issues of that are separate um, yeah so like the first thing i do when i look at a form e and, and i look at the pension section is i see whether i can figure out if the, there are different pensions mm-hmm. and if they're different types because if you've got you know substantial assets in pensions and one of them is clearly a defined contribution fund and one of them is clearly a defined benefit fund it's an immediate red flag for right we're going to probably going to need an expert here okay and that leads me on to the same thing is, sorry, the next thing is, which is uh, how do you assign a value to pensions? How do you decide what they're worth? And we talked that they're two very different things and uh, 200,000 one is not the same thing as 200,000 the other. And so that's, is it, do you always need an expert to step in and, and no. decide what it is? Can, can you figure it out by yourself? With, with some of them, you can figure it out relatively straightforwardly. Like a standard, in, in inverted commas, defined contribution scheme where there are no special features. Like, so there's no guaranteed income or anything. You know, for, and you, you'd need to check the paperwork for the pension mm-hmm. scheme. Um, but if it's just a, a sort of run-of-the-mill, you know, off-the-shelf defined contribution fund, um, where someone's just been paying in from their income, it's not been through their employer, it's not, you know, they don't work for the NHS or anything like that. The the CETV figure it is just how much money is in the investment. And that's a pr- pretty, you know, helpful indicator of the capital value of that fund. And with the defined benefit scheme, it's completely different because when you write, let, and we've been talking about the NHS, when you write to the NHS and say, please, can you send me you know, the information about my pension and they send it back to you and it's got the the value figure there. 
what that means is actually how much it costs them to to provide you with the retirement benefits that it states. So let's say you've got an NHS fund that provides you with £10,000 a year on retirement. The CE figure that they produce will bear no resemblance to the, the market and what it would cost to go and buy an annuity, an annuity being a guaranteed income on retirement, will bear no resemblance necessarily to what it would cost to go and buy an annuity of £10,000 a year. Because the NHS have got all their own actuarial calculations. They've got their own sure. investment funds, potentially, um, although a lot of public sector schemes are unfunded. But that's probably a conversation for um, a more yeah. in-depth <laughs> in look. But basically, you know, you get this defined benefit value figure back and it could be 200,000. It could be 250,000. It could be 300,000. Different funds and different schemes will evaluate what it costs them completely differently to provide, for example, £10,000 a year. So that's why with defined benefit funds in particular, you need to be super careful. But it's worth bearing in mind that if you're actually looking at pensions in the right way, when it comes to dividing them on divorce, you're not actually massively interested in the cash equivalent value of a defined benefit pension. Because in the first instance, how much do you really care about its capital value? when the point of it is an income producing asset on retirement mm -hmm. what you're more interested in when you get that you know those statements back is how much does it pay when you retire yeah um and that's kind of where to oversimplify how an expert will value a defined benefit pension what they will basically do is they'll say okay well this pension pays ten thousand pounds a year um on retirement you know, inflation adjusted with reference to, you know, whatever measure of inflation they might use. And then, like I said, to oversimplify, so apologies to all the pensions experts out there, basically what they'll do is they'll say, well, how much would it cost to go out into the marketplace and buy an annuity or otherwise fund that amount of income on retirement? Okay. So in other words, you know, you might you might get your fund value and all your information back from the NHS. Um, and then an expert's going to look at that and say, right, I'm not that bothered about the CE figure from them. I'm going to go and look at how much it would actually cost to replicate the, the, the value of that retirement income. OK, and so this is why we need to have. Well, this is why experts are so important, because they're the ones that have the knowledge base to be able to do those those calculations and to figure out what those values are going to be. Yeah, that's right. And when do you when do you think we should be having those conversations with the experts? Is it before we even start proceedings? Is it once proceedings are started or is it if we're not doing proceedings before we've even looked at negotiating a separation of assets or. Yeah. I mean, the, the big message from the pension advisory group and mm. from, you know, all of us in the extremely niche little community of pensions geeks is you need to do this as soon as you physically can. Okay. So ideally, as you know, let's say that you're a, you know, a private client family lawyer who has, you know, a client come and see you, starts talking about their assets, you know, you're doing your initial interview, you're gathering the initial information about, about what they've got. And you, you know, the pension section comes up, you ask them about the pension, 
Uh, that's the point. The earliest possible opportunity, that is when it is to start saying, okay, well, we need proper pensions information. Let's write to them. Let's find out um, you know, what they say the value of your fund is, you know, how many pensions have you got, what different types of, are they? And then again, at the first opportunity, when it comes to disclosure from the other person, doing the same analysis so that you can establish whether there is a need for expert input. Because it might be that you've got a client with a perfectly normal DC fund and only one of them. Their ex-partner has also only got one DC fund. There are no special features and there are relatively modest amounts in them. You know, that at least you know at that point, well, I don't need to worry too much about that. But, you know, let's say that you've got someone who's had 20 years in the armed forces and has an armed forces scheme pension. Um, that's an immediate red flag for needing to look at it more carefully, potentially needing an expert. The armed forces scheme is notorious for being, uh, that's why I picked it, for being a bit tricky, <laughs> because um, once you hit a certain number of years service, you're on the armed forces on a lot of their schemes, if not all of them. Then as soon as you retire from the service, you can get your pension rather than getting at age 60 or 65. Right. Yeah. So something like that can make an enormous difference. And depending on how much time we've got, I've got some uh, examples of cases. Uh, and that's one of them where it can really throw a spanner in the works. So if you're not actually looking properly at pensions until first appointment um, or FDR, as often happens with cases that I see, it's too late. Uh, so, and you're, um, you're going to get delays. So actually, when, to, when, when you when you start looking at them, and it's, you know, it's, it's time sensitive, when, you know, is it useful to have counsel involved looking at this as soon as possible, depend is it depending on the uh, the complexities of the pensions? Are there are there points where you think you know this is really where counsel should be involved, rather than having the solicitor or a pension um, uh, provider, not provider, pension expert looking at it? What what when do you think we need to have what kind of expert and when? Yeah, I mean the the reason that you'd come to somebody like me sooner rather than later is perhaps if you lacked the confidence to do an initial assessment of the pensions sure. yourself. So someone like me, I could I could look at the pensions and I could say, well, look, these are the key features of the pensions that you've got. These are the things that you're likely to going to need to do in terms of probably going to need to ask an expert this question, that question or the other question. The way in which you're probably going to try and treat pensions is this, that or the other. You know, a lot of people, for example, historically like ring fencing pensions. They like offsetting yeah. pensions against yes. other assets. Those wonderful and, terminologies. Um, yeah. And. They're the sorts of things, if you're going to do those um, or you're going to try and do them or you think you might, you know, actually, for example, with ring fencing, that's generally deprecated, uh, sort of deprecated, is that the right word? Frowned upon, let's go mm -hmm. with. Uh, nowadays, you know, in most needs cases, you're not going to be able to ring fence a, a premarital pension or part mm -hmm. of a, a pension that is premarital. Uh, offsetting is heavily warned against by pension advisory group because it's so dangerous. Um, but equally, sometimes these are the only realistic options available for settlement because of yeah. the, the assets that you've got. So the early evaluation is around, well, what kind of thing are we going to be doing with these pensions or trying to do based on the features, the value, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the earlier you do it, yeah, the better, because you can, I mean, first of all, notifying the pension providers that you've got a divorce going on and that there's a potential for a pension sharing order to be made, super important. And second of all, the earlier you can get your expert instructed, 
the sooner they can write to the pensions providers and ask them for the key information, because the major delay point on pensions is the the amount of time it takes for pension schemes to respond mm. to questions from yeah. experts so that the experts can write their reports. Yeah, they, they do take forever. They, and it just seems to be getting longer and longer. Mm. Um, you keep mentioning pension advisory group. Um, PAG. PAG is a term that's been floated around the family law world for a while now. What is the pension advisory group? What is the report that they have prepared? I'm thinking there's PAG 1 and PAG 2. Am I correct? There seems to be PAG, quite a few yeah. PAGs. Yeah. PAG 1 is uh, um, is sort of still the current one. PAG 2 is being worked on at the moment, but it's a comprehensive report uh, and sort of set of guidance um, that's been generated by an interdisciplinary group of people who basically noticed and did something about the fact that we've had pension sharing as an available order for mm. decades, and there's literally been zero formal guidance on how to do it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I remember this. I remember when I started out in my career, you know, doing negotiations and people, you know, we'd be talking about pensions. And I'm, I remember experienced counsel saying to me, oh, well, we'll do the pension share or blah, 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 we're offset. And then, you know, the, the rule of thumb is that you do, uh, for getting an offset, you know, cash in lieu of a pension, you do a 25% utility discount. So you, you take the money that you would get by offset, knock off 25% to basically account for the fact that there's a great benefit to getting the cash now rather than having to wait and then that's how we do it and I, I remember I actually went away and I remember sitting in Lincoln's Inn Library researching hours and hours of research why is this the way that it's done I'm being told by these senior practitioners this is how it's done and I couldn't find anything anywhere that was in a, a principal reason for doing it and it's because there wasn't one and the pension advisory group have really They've done an enormous amount of work to sort of bring a degree of standardization, common approach, mm. and the right way of doing it into financial remedies practice. Um, and it's worth bearing in mind that um, McFarlane, as the president, has formally endorsed the report as guidance. Right. So it's, it is, in fact, you know, the pet sort of pensions practice Bible, in a way. This is how you do it. And it's got so, information for both the, the solicitors, but also the professional um, people provide, preparing the reports. Yeah, yeah. And um, as such, for, for those listeners who are family lawyers, the, the benefit of that is that you open the PAG report and, you know, slightly panic because it's 176 pages long or whatever. Yes, and then terrifying. actually you don't have to read all of them. And you don't have to read it cover to cover. I mean, I certainly wouldn't advise that you start at the beginning and just read all the way through it. Um, that's not the best way to do it. I, I, I always advise people, There's first of all, there's a, an introductory guide. There's an executive summary document. Yes. Read the executive summary first. Yeah. And if you're really super, you know, new to pensions, actually, um, the thing I'd recommend you read first is the Survival Guide to Pensions published by Advice Now. Oh, there you go. You've got it. And, I love uh, it. It's yeah. brilliant. <laughs> um, so actually read that first. Uh, and even if it sort of feels a bit embarrassing because it's you know aimed at members of the public, it's super basic, nobody's going to know yeah. if you don't tell anyone that you've read that first. But it's actually incredibly useful. 
then read the executive summary of PAG. And then for PAG itself, I would actually start with parts seven and maybe six. Seven is about offsetting. Um, six is about dealing with pensions fairly, um, the role of a pensions expert, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd actually start by reading section seven, then section six, then probably two essential points, three, and then 10, uh, which is about uh, income gap syndrome and age difference, because that's mm. a, a common pitfall where you've got two people who are separating who are you know, substantially um, yeah. you know, different ages. That can cause big problems from pensions point of view. Uh, and then sort of just read uh, as and as and when you need the different sections. Oh, and and definitely read Appendix E. And actually, you want, might want to read Appendix E sooner rather than later because that is a sample letter of instruction to a pensions expert. It's and really there's good. loads of helpful stuff in there, and I use good. that all the time. It is a very good one. Um, it's it's an amazing report. I've got I've got the hard copy and I've got a soft copy on my computer, and it's. It, it's terrifying because it's so huge, but it's got so much information in there. And if you're like me, where you think pensions are terrifying, yeah. it is a great help. And I do love the survival guide because it really yeah. is a great way in. It's really good. Well, I mean, uh, for what it's worth, I the only the only times I've read the report cover to cover are when I was involved in it being published, um, and I had a relatively minor role towards the end um, in the sort of design and readability of it, yeah. and I went through page to page to page to sort of look at how easy it was to read. Mm. Um, but no, otherwise, as with many, I don't know if other people do this in their practice, but I hardly ever read any document in a case from page one to the last page in sequence. Yeah. Um, because that's just, I don't know. I, I, I chop and change and then I go back and then I read the ending and I read the beginning yeah, and then I go back the to end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the relevant bits and then eventually go through all of it. So I have it all. Um, I have two things that I want to talk to you about now. One is um, asking for some top tips, but the other is the Galbraith tables. And do you think we should talk about the Galbraith tables before the top tips or after the top tips? I don't really mind. I mean, I'm happy to talk about the Galbraith tables, I suppose, connect into what we've been talking about with reference to value. All right, let's do that. Um, and offsetting. So the, the idea behind the Galbraith tables is um, to try and help with offsetting. And the yeah, the, the place to go for more information for the tables themselves is there's a link on the Financial Remedies Journal website and there's a whole big mm. article about it. And yes. they link through to them there. But they're kind of like a version of Duxbury or Ogden, um, but for pensions. Mm. And what they're specifically intended to do is help with a bit of a sense check when you're when you do have to do an offset. So when you do have to say, oh, well, it's not actually feasible or desirable for whatever reason to do a pension sharing order. So what we're going to do is, you know, person one, you keep your pension and therefore person two, you have more of something else. And doing the maths on that is incredibly difficult because pensions don't easily calculate out into a number that's comparable to something else. And that's frequently why you're getting an expert uh, is to say, look, we want to do this offsetting thing. How do we do it? How do we calculate it in a way that's fair? Um, and previously, the entire exercise was almost entirely opaque and unknowable for anyone. It was basically just, we're going to have to do an offset. God knows what the numbers are going to be until we get an expert report back. So. Yeah. 
let's ask them sooner rather than later. And the, um, the Galbraith tables kind of give you a bit of an introduction or a bit of a guide on doing it yourself. Um, so they've got some examples um, within the tables. The, 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 one, the first one they have is a situation where you've got, um, let's have a look, they've got a husband aged 45 with a pension of 10,000 pounds a year payable at age 60, uh, index linked to CPI, inflation. Uh, and but basically what, what the Galbraith tables help you to do is to assign a notional cash equivalent uh, or offset figure. So how, how much in offset money or other assets is 10,000 pounds a year to a man aged 45 that pays out at age 60? And the tables have got, they're basically just a big, um, a, a, a big table of uh, multipliers with a sort of vertical and a horizontal axis whereby you sort of triangulate your multiplier. So along the top, you've got the assumed retirement age, and then you go down the column to the relevant age of the person now. So, and again, the, the worked example is on the Financial Remedies Journal website. So it's probably um, easier to look at it whilst listening to me at the same time, if you can. But basically there's a oh, multiplier. We'll put the link in the um, yeah. notes to it so people can do that. So for man age 45, retiring at age 60, um, they've got a figure of 26.230 as a multiplier. And then what you do is you do your 10,000 pounds, which is the income, times it by 26.230, and you get a, a figure of 262,300 pounds. So roughly, you've got a sense that that's your offset figure for that pension. And it's only this only works for defined benefit pensions because the whole point is you're, you're trying to value, trying mm -hmm. to assign a capital value to an income. Um, and in a way, also, there's a degree of complexity around, is it, are you assigning a capital value? Well, strictly speaking, no. What you're trying to do is, again, think about um, a, a fair way of representing the income value. But what you would then do with that, that £262,300 is probably something where, you know, again, that's a, a, a conversation for another day when we've got more time. Um, but the thing to bear in mind with, with, the, with the Galbraith tables is they're very much intended to be uh, a guide and a sense check. It's not a reliable way of valuing a pension. Right. I was about to say, um, I'm like, is this is this completely removing out of the equation getting a pension report? No, it's really not. Getting a person involved. And like, whenever I talk to my friends who are financial advisors or pensions experts about, I'm doing a talk and I'm going to mention Galbraith. The, the thing they're always very keen to say is, right, just please tell everyone that Galbraith is not a substitute and it's not a reliable yeah. way of arriving at, at at the actual offset mm. figure you're going to get. And so, I suppose the best way I can demonstrate how it, how it's used is how I have in fact used it. Um, I, because I've, I've, I've referred to Galbraith in a number of hearings this year in front of judges. Um, and frequently, the reason I'm doing it is because we're talking about whether we need an expert. And I'm trying to convince the court that we need one. And because someone has said, well, we've got the CE figure for this pension. It's quite low. Therefore, getting a pension expert is disproportionate. And I, I, I had a case uh, in the spring, I think it was, where the... The fund was, it was armed forces or firefighters or something. It was one of the, I forget which one, but the income on retirement was really quite good. And the cash equivalent fund published by the scheme, I thought was 
suspiciously too low. I was like, that that looks off. And so I went, I opened the Galbraith tables. I did the exercise of finding the multiplier for the person's age and for the amount of income and mm-hmm. did and did the maths. And this the, the, the rough value figure from the Galbraith tables was about £150,000 more than the yeah. figure published by That's the huge. scheme. Yeah. And that convinced the court, oh, yes, we clearly need a pensions report. It's, it's, it's fundamentally proportionate to what we're doing. So that, that's the sort of way in which I use the Galbraith tables. And that's the way in which they can be very useful is to, to, to basically check, is this, is this roughly correct or not? I do love this explanation because I've sat through a few seminars on the Galbraith tables and not understood a word of what they were saying to me. And in five minutes, you've made it quite clear, A, when to use it, B, how to use it, C, um, what the what the, the, the pros and cons are. So that's, that's great. Thanks, Matt. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, we're going to finish up with top tips. So if you could give me some key tips for um, how to make this work, how to use it, or, or, and by make it work, I mean dealing with pensions and financial remedy situations, but also any key risks that we should be thinking about um, when we're dealing with this as, as practitioners. Okay. Well, I think, some, I think I've already touched on the, the most important one, which is address pensions early, yes. as early as you physically can. Um, the the thing that struck me earlier when you said, oh, we're not talking about the state pension, that's a different thing. Um, I thought it's worth bearing in mind that although it kind of is a different thing, it also sort of isn't because it is an income stream mm. on retirement. Yeah. It's frequently the most valuable asset in a case and people don't even realize. Um, some, what, one of the, the private pension schemes about five years ago did the maths on the state pension um, by way of, you know, capitalizing, uh, you know, giving it a value figure. And um, it was surprising. I think it was, hang on, I've got it noted down somewhere. Where have I got it? Here we go. So the cash equivalent value figure of the full state pension, and this was pre-pandemic, but it was, you know, whatever, eight or 9,000 a year, 327,000 pounds. Yeah. So, um, you know, to miss an asset worth, you know, nearly 350K uh, is something that you shouldn't be doing. Um, Always consider state pensions. Um, Forms BR19 and BR20 are available online. That is how you get the state pensions forecast. And also Um, give yourself a lot of time to ask for it, because in my experience, state pensions are always the one that the clients forget and then you've got the deadline of oh i've got my i've got my first appointment coming up or whatever Mm. or i've got to deal with this and then you're spent waiting months to get some sort of feedback and the thing is it's really easy like i i i fill them in for myself just to see how long it takes um it doesn't take that long so long as the client actually does it yeah um so yeah don't forget about the state pensions um deal with pensions early the um, for me on pensions is really unhelpful, and I know it's a question for the rules committee. And maybe I mean, I mean the argument at rules committee level is that you can't change for me just by changing the rules; that it's more of a legislative step. But the section in the for me for pensions is widely acknowledged to be inadequate. Yeah, um, you need to gather more information than that. For example, there's no mention of state pension. Uh, yeah. in the for me, which is it's daft. Um, have a look into PAG. There's a checklist in PAG 
uh, in one of the appendices, I think. I can't remember which one. But there's a checklist somewhere in PAG uh, that's very helpful on have you looked at this, that and the other. Uh, it's much more comprehensive than for me will ever be. So that's very useful. Um, another thing that might seem small but really isn't is when you're filling in the uh, the yeah pension sharing annex, once you've got your pension sharing order, um, box F on the form, the annex form, is a tick box uh, that says where the transferee, i.e. the recipient of the pension share, has a choice of an internal or external transfer, which means they can choose to stay internal as a member of the scheme, mm -hmm. or they can have the pension transferred out of the scheme so that the recipient can invest it wherever they want. Uh, indicate what this is. And then it gives you a tick box, internal transfer tick or external transfer tick. Never, ever fill that in. Oh. Yeah, because ticking that box constitutes giving your client financial advice, which you're not regulated to do. Okay. So it's, it's quite, it's, a, it's an important tip because it's yes. a, a massive potential negligence point. So if, if it's going to be ticked, it needs to be ticked by the client, mm -hmm. understanding what they're doing, and yes. probably with the benefit of having received legal advice, uh, financial uh, advice. Fine, fine. Yeah. yeah. Because fundamentally, what you're doing there is you're saying, uh, well, you know, I or my client wants to have this this pension share transferred out. So implicit within that is the acknowledgement that that's a better financial decision than keeping than staying as a, as, as a member of the scheme. How can you possibly, you can't give your client that advice if you're yeah. a lawyer. So don't tick box F is a big one. The other key issue to bear in mind is 20, the 28-day period um, as between decree absolute and the pension sharing order being made um, by the court. So, and I've written this down and I'm going to read it out because it's, it's so important and I want to get it right. Yeah. Um, a pension sharing order takes effect on the later of seven days following the period for appeal or the date of the decree absolute. And so because the period for appeal normally is 21 days, the earliest that a pension sharing order can usually take effect is 28 days after it's approved by the court. Therefore, it's considered best practice to delay applying for the decree absolute until after 28 days so that the pension sharing order takes effect immediately on the date of the decree absolute. And what this ensures is that the person receiving the pension sharing order remains the legal spouse during the 28-day period. Yeah. And so what that means is that if the, the pension holder dies unexpectedly in that period, the pension sharing order would not take effect and the scheme instead is dealing with a death claim from a surviving spouse. Because what you don't want is to basically have fallen into this gap in the middle whereby somebody dies and you don't, you, and you can't then share the pension. Right. So 28 days thing, super important. I hope that, I hope I explained that clearly. No, no, that makes complete sense. Um, uh, other tips, other tips. Uh, it's worth bearing in mind that even within a single pension scheme, the value figures need to be treated with caution. And I, I get this tip because I had a case this year where the paperwork back from the scheme had two different numbers in it 
One of them was called fund value, and the other one was called transfer value. And the fund value was 200,000, the transfer value was 140,000. And, you know, I know enough about pensions to sort of be able to talk to other people about it in contexts like this. And even I, all I did there, and I suppose in a way, this is one of the big takeaways, what I did there was say, hmm, that's weird, what does that mean? Um, and basically it went back to my solicitor and said, we need to double check what this means because it looks like, you know, X, Y, or Z, but let's be clear. And that's kind of one of the big takeaways from this. First of all, different pension schemes do things very differently. And second of all, and this kind of comes right back to the beginning of our conversation about why you kind of don't need to be that scared of pensions is because a lot of what you need to know as a lawyer is what you should know and what you shouldn't and the boundary. And actually, I don't know loads about pensions. I just know the things that I'm, that I'm supposed to know and I know when to ask somebody else because I'm not supposed to know that thing. Yeah. So in a way, it's having the confidence to be like, ooh, I don't know about that. What does that mean? And then go and ask someone rather than think, oh, I'm supposed to know that. I'm just going to sort of muddle along because I feel embarrassed. Yeah. Um, and actually, a lot of the time, my role is to come in and ask questions rather than give answers yeah. because I'm not a pensions expert in, yeah. in, in financial terms or in actuarial terms. I'm a legal expert. So well, I can come as- in and say... Yeah, but as long as you know, wait, hold on a moment, this is something that we need to know more about, or mm. this could be an issue, or this is something that the court's going to want to know about, or you know, have you thought yeah. about these complexities, you don't need to have the answer for it, you yeah. just need to be able I mean, to flag in a way, up. In a way, it's a bit like, you know, if you've got a client with a complicated medical problem, you don't suddenly get really worried that you don't understand, you know, the inner workings yeah. of the human heart or something. You just go and get a medical expert. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a lot like that with pensions. You know, you can understand the basics and then you can understand when you need a pensions expert. And then, you know, really, it's just a question then of asking the right questions of the pension expert. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, uh, because I could carry on asking you 101 questions, I'm going to get you to come back on and talk about pensions later on. Um, but I have one final question, which is nothing to do with pensions, but the usual question for... Uh, family law lattes and my usual burning question is what is your favorite coffee drink but i know you don't drink coffee so what is your favorite non-coffee drink i mean it's all about the tea i i didn't really drink hot drinks for a long time like growing up like i I was never one of these kids that sort of was introduced to tea at age Mm -hmm. four which is what we've done with our son um i didn't really discover tea until i was about 25 and i sort (laughs) of i now i kind of mourn the decade of lost tea drinking from my life because it's just one of the best things in the world. A cup of tea <laughs> solves almost any problem, I think. That's very um, true. So yeah, if I'm if I'm sort of having a fancy tea, I'll probably have like a, a, a nice black tea with no milk, like a Darjeeling or something. Mm-hmm. But I've got a lot of time for just um, a cup of Yorkshire yeah. with a bit of milk. Um, and something we, 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 were, we were messaging on, on WhatsApp, I know that you know where the best coffee is to be found around the central family court well could you, could you I, I tell only, me because i used to go to starbucks and then that closed and now i'm like i, I don't know where to go anymore I, I mean i only know to the extent that somebody else in chambers told me and we went there and i took somebody else there once and they said the coffee was very good so it's called triple two uh, and it's on leather lane and i looked on google maps it's a six minute walk from cfc 
oh wow, I never even thought about going to Leather Lane. This is great. I will have to go. There's and try a bunch this. of coffee places on Leather Lane. There's another one called Federation Coffee. Ah, oh, yes, I've been there. Further up, yeah. But Triple Two is the one that I've been to. Now I'm going to turn the tables here because I I've listened to enough of these episodes just just to be able to say I think with confidence that no one has ever asked you what your favourite coffee drink is. I don't think they have no. Well. Oh, see, I'm I'm very fickle. I is will... it a latte? So, yes, it can be a latte. It, at the moment, it's an oat flat white. I am a big fan of of, of a proper Italian cappuccino. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like you know, a little little bit of coffee of cream, and then lots and lots of you know, foam on it. Um, it really depends on how I'm feeling, and obviously, a black coffee is like a nice espresso. Yeah. It really depends on how I'm feeling. Like today, I've had like three oat flat whites, so you know, go figure. <laughs> Like, have you got a fancy coffee set up at home? I, I, uh, no, I have a normal Nespresso machine. Um, that, that's, that's as far as it goes. I just like going out and trying all the coffee shops I can come across. I'm like, oh, I wonder what they'll do. And sometimes you're like, no, you have not understood the assignment. This is not a cappuccino. This is some weird <laughs> yeah. milky coffee thing. This is not working yeah. for me. Well, I get that when I go abroad in particular and uh, other people try and serve me a cup of tea. Oh no, that's, it's just, that's... What, how how it's like the simple how have we managed to get this wrong? Yes, and yet, yes. but then to be fair, there's this whole debate even within England, isn't there, uh, about like you know how you make a cup of tea and do you put the milk in first? Um, yes, that's yeah. started on, on on English tea making and who's <laughs> yeah. right and who's wrong. It's a bit like the, yeah. it's a bit like the um, the scones and the cream and jam and cream. Jam yes. and how that's supposed to work. Matt, thank you so much for coming on and doing with me. This was really really interesting. Um, so much information. Thank you for and, having me. Um, you're going to come back on. You're going to do another podcast about pensions with me at some point in time in the future. So okay. uh, watch this space, guys. Um, thanks so much, Matt. Thanks Bye. a lot. Bye now. For more information on anything you've heard on the podcast or to appear on the show as a guest, please email me at familylawandlattes at gmail.com. There will be a new episode shortly. Until next time.